Welcome to Podcetera. Each episode is a journey of discovery as we delve into topics that pique our curiosity and yours. We feature in-depth interviews with fascinating individuals who have extraordinary stories to share. I'm Renee Lego. And I'm Joelle Ludovich. And this is Podcetera. Michelle Golopali, welcome to Podcetera. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here, Renee. I'm Joelle. I am so thrilled to be coming here and celebrating this brand new venture of yours. That's great, Michelle. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up and tell us a little bit about your family life? I was born and raised in a little city in the south of India called Bangalore and grew up there. I was raised by my grandparents because having been born a girl, my parents opted not to raise me. I grew up with a lot of awareness about gender disparities, but also respect for the people that were doing something about them. So got my education in India and came to this country about 25 years ago. And when I got off that plane in JFK, I knew really nobody here. I didn't have any of my network here, did not know too many people, save for uh, my husband at the time. So it was an interesting thing to come to a brand new country, not knowing anyone and taking that big, big leap of faith. Would you tell us about your grandparents and what it was like growing up in India? My grandparents are the people that I respect the most, without doubt. My grandfather was uh, a very progressive man for his time. He moved out of his uh, village in a different state, different city there, and uh, came to Bangalore and did something that not too many people of his generation did, which was start to work for an airline. So he worked for India's only domestic airline at the time, Indian Airlines, and was actually part of the flight crew when the the plane crashed and he was one of the only survivors there. That really, really made a difference to how he viewed the world from that point on. And so I guess that's something that he instilled in me from a very early age to really seize the moment and to make sure that I wasn't wasting any of the opportunities that I had been given. My grandmother, on the other hand, was a real force to be reckoned with. She pretty much single-handedly raised eight children because my grandfather, of course, was with the airlines and flying all over the country. So from her, I learned how to be a strong, independent woman, to be self-reliant, and really to always stand up for what you believed in. How did you end up in the States from Bangalore? Was it your husband's decision, or had you always wanted to emigrate to the States? I had always wanted to travel the world, and of course, the there was that, I guess, the magical lore of the West, right? It was this bigger, beautiful world that everyone was so successful. At least that's what television in India showed us. And so when I got engaged, my fiancé at the time had already really established his world in the U.S., in Philadelphia. And so he had come here to study and then chosen to stay on and become a citizen. And so when we got engaged to be married, there really wasn't too much of a choice as to who would have to make that move. And on my end, there wasn't that much reluctance because I had seen this great new world that was the United States. And so I was really looking forward to uh, coming here and establishing my new life in a brand new country halfway across the world. And you ended up in the Philadelphia area, is that right? Uh, the Philadelphia area, yep. 25 years later, that's the place that I still call home. Can you talk a little bit about how you landed your first job here in the States? My first job was actually with a bookstore. I am a voracious reader and I figured, all right, I needed to get my feet wet and get to know the culture from working person's uh, you know, viewpoint. And so there was a classified ad in the Roxborough Review. And I looked at it and I said, all right, there, I can go and I can work there. And so I started to work at the bookstore, but it was so interesting that when I did that, I was just, I think, two months into being in this country and had no idea about a lot of the nuances. For instance, I was a cashier at this bookstore and 
someone came to me and said, just give me a dime back. And I was clueless as to what a dime meant. 10 cents, I knew what that meant. But a dime, I had no idea because it was such a different currency. So it was little things like that that really, you know, caught me off guard. And the use of slang in this country really got to me. People would say, there's not enough room in this place to swing a cat. And I'm thinking, why would you want to do something as cruel as that? So having had the privilege of an education with a British school in India, I was taught to be very proper and slang was absolutely not part of what I was raised with. So that's something that really hit me coming here. It's like the use of slang and the use of a lot of jargon. So that was an interesting welcome to America. Yeah, especially like in the Philadelphia area too. There's a lot of different neighborhoods, ethnicities, and that every pocket has their own slang, so to speak. And their accents, you know, rough and wooder. Yeah, wooder. <laughs> I, if I said wooder in Texas, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And even there are some things that I still say as I was raised to say them. So I always say water. And there are places when I go to some of the restaurants and I say, may I have a glass of water, please? The wait staff look at me really weird. It's like, what drink is she asking for again? So that's interesting. Yeah. So the three of us have known each other for quite a while. After you worked at the bookstore, you ended up at a little television station known as WYBE. Joelle and I were working at this station as well. Tell us about how you landed that job and let's talk a little bit about what the mission was for this TV station. So that job again came through the Roxborough Review and I had no idea that this local paper was going to introduce me to something that was truly global. And so it was this ad for a, an assistant in the international business department um, at this cool little television station that had the offices above a paint store. And I remember walking in there and thinking, wow, that's different. But, you know, I had never worked in public broadcasting before. So I said, all right, let's give this a try out. And so started to work with the international business department. And my job really was to work with all of the producers because this was a public television station that was international in nature where there were so many different international shows that were part of the lineup. We had Armenian, Greek, Polish, Indian, Korean, all of these different shows. And my job was to oversee all of the producers, their contracts to make sure that the contracts were in, in good shape, they were renewed in time, and to also, because it was public broadcasting, make sure that there were no calls to action during any of their so-called commercial breaks. So that was my job, and I loved it so much because it introduced me to such a diverse culture. It, it gave me such a great look of Philadelphia because that was what the city was all about, right? This coming together and blending of all of these different cultures, and yet the celebration of diversity. So I think that's where I got my first taste of what diversity truly looks like and how we can all come together and celebrate it in ways that are both unifying as well as respecting other cultures and other individuals and really celebrating how different we are and yet our principles are so much alike. I think what was unique about that place, that station, was the people that worked there. And I think that we were ahead of our time. Certainly, Philly Live was. You know, we were the first LGBTQ live talk show in the nation. And once you were working there, you expanded your role and you became an on-air personality for the pledge drives. And back then, they were exciting yet chaotic. You know, Joelle and I produced the pledge breaks. You went from never being on TV to being on TV. So talk about that and then co-hosting with people who are speaking languages you don't. Yeah. And what that was like. Oh, my gosh. That was so interesting. Because, again, we were a small television station, right? So everybody pitched in whenever we needed help. And so I went from, you know, watching the pledge drives from the sidelines thinking, hmm, I think I can do that. And, you know, certainly working with both of you who were already so professional 
in your approach with whether it was pledge drives, whether it was fiddly knife, you really knew your stuff. And so to be able to rely on that experience and that expertise and say, all right, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it with the incredible support of my colleagues. So I would, again, because it was a really small station working on a very small budget, I remember sitting on those pledge, on those very rickety bar stools during a pledge drive with people I have not even met until you know, 30 seconds before we went on air. And sometimes you went on faith. You went on faith knowing that even if they were speaking a Polish or Greek, they were saying the things that needed to be said to bring people onto membership into the station. But it was just such a great cultural experience to be able to get a glimpse into these different cultures of who they were, what made them tick, and to see too that they were just so committed to making sure that their culture engaged with the station, supported the station. And it's also where I got my start in fundraising because I had no idea that that was how people supported things in this world. You know, I had no idea what the nonprofit sector was even like because when I left India, it was really not that developed, if you will. Uh, we'd only heard about, you know, the Red Cross, the Ops fans, like the really, really big organizations, but never really looked at the nonprofit sector and how it worked and how much fundraising was a big part of helping support critical programs for the communities. And so that was where I got my start too, right there at YBV sitting on those um, rookie bar stools. And of course, because I happened to be petite and a lot of people that I went on air were not, I would have the additional joy of being placed on two or three um, issues of yellow pages. And now it was even more precarious. So I, I had to sit very still or else, you know, risk uh, falling off my stool. We were so budget constricted, we couldn't even afford Apple boxes. Brass, yeah. So that was interesting. I remember going over to the local Acme to get one of those crates because there was one shot that I needed to stand next to somebody who was really tall. And if I didn't have that apple crate, I could have easily come up to almost his waist. He was that tall. But thanks to the apple crate, I was now up to his shoulders and now it was a good shot. It was things like that that made it so much fun. And also those were the days that I think we had all of our breaks be live breaks. So that meant we went all towards the end, towards the end of, um, I guess, our broadcast day, which was about midnight, or sometimes we shot till 1 a.m. And so all the breaks had to be live. So we had to bolster our energy right through that. So, you know, just bringing that rapport that we had already established together and laughing and joking when we weren't on air and, it was just one of the best, best places I've worked in. And I've worked in several places since then, but it always brings back such great memories. And you know, clearly the three of us are, you know, back together and reminiscing about it right now. So that was where I made my first friends in this country and still hold those relationships today. And both of you are a big part of that. So thank you. You know, what's interesting is that I did not have any pledge experience when I started there. I don't know, Joelle, you hadn't had any either. Well, I came out of grad school and uh, came back to the area. So I was in Savannah, Georgia for grad school and then came back here and started looking. Actually, someone that I knew recommended that I apply for the job at WYBE. So it was like I was coming from a international college of the arts in Savannah and then, you know, looking for, it, it seemed to be a, a great fit because it was the diversity. It was, you know, the people that cared about the same mission and the opportunity to produce a live show and be a producer at that stage of the game was something that this is probably not going to be an opportunity that comes along very often. Even though it was at a small station, you know, I wanted to get that experience, that live television experience. Yeah. So, no, I um, I was just coming back to the area myself. And I just came back from Japan. Oh. Oh, that's right. I remember that. Yeah. So we all were just coming back. I'd worked at the station before I left. 
and then came back and got offered the role to produce Philly Live. And then they added pledge drives to that job description. And I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do that? Well, Renee, Renee really was the anchor and she really was the lead, you know? And I just was like, okay, let's, I'm just going to do whatever, you know, let's do this because I, my background is more film oriented than television oriented. Although I sort of fell into the television part of it and now I teach TV and so forth. But yeah, it, it was interesting, um, time. For all of us, I think. And I have, you know, we've all remained connected in one way or another. And it's just, I always talk about this time and I always like get a smile on my face because it was such a unique experience for me. And like you said, you value the relationships that you've built. I didn't know you all were like figuring it out too. We all had our game faces on, I guess, you know, and it was like, well, we were all young and we were hungry for experience. Yes. I couldn't think of a better group to have had that experience with. And it was just, I know, there was just something special about all of us coming together. It's funny that we all feel the same way about it because I never really knew how, you know, we never really talk about it. But now we're getting an opportunity to talk about it. I always knew that it felt special to me, but I wasn't aware of how it felt to others there that's why we're doing this podcast i miss joelle i haven't had that co-producer in years and we were able to work together on a project and be across the country you two were the dynamic duo and the fact that like it was it was just like a concept we were both trying to figure it out as we went along too but it really took off we were there during 9 11 do you remember being at the station on that day? We were together on that day. Yeah, I know. And that day, I felt lucky that I wasn't alone. I remember I was late that day. <laughs> I was like 10 minutes late. I had a little truck at the time, and I was listening to the radio, and I heard what was happening. And then when I arrived at the station, I went in, and I'm like, you know, go to our office, and I'm like, no one's back there. And I'm like, I come out to the front and everyone was gathered in the lobby glued to the television and I get chills thinking about it because like it was just such a an experience to go through with everyone and you know then calling people that I knew or trying to reach people in New York and oh yeah and I could not have asked for a better place to have been during that particular time because soon after that there was so much racial discrimination we used to have like protesters come out in front of the stations, you know, to protest our LGBTQ plus programming and stuff. But being all together and I felt we were all supporting one another in the same mission. And that made it all the more not easy, but like something that we were all striving for. Yeah, but it was also a safe space. You know, I felt like I could bring my authentic self there and not be disrespected. I think one final thing I'll say is that I didn't feel like I had a glass ceiling when it came to producing. Joelle and I would come up with an idea and we'd be like, let's try to get this person. Even though we were a very small station, we didn't see our limitations like the way I, I see things now. I didn't have that box. Renee, we used to do the theme weeks and stuff, so I was like, inventors week and then somebody mentioned garrett brown so i had it and then we were able to do like a live remote of the steadicam showing the audience what that looks like you don't get those opportunities to do that kind of stuff we did a ton of stuff that's just one example want yeah, to be able to bring people like martina navratilova into our little yve studio and have this weird conversation with her and like you were saying renee there weren't there wasn't a seat we were allowed to be who we couldn't be. And so I think so much of our potential started to become realized then because of that faith that people had in us. Let's go back. Let's go back in time. I mean, that show had so much potential, so much more than um, left in it. But who knows how many other shows it inspired, right? There's a new Philly Live with similar looking logo, different colors. Really? Yes. Wow. Huh. Yep. So... I remember even first seeing that logo and, you know, wondering where it would take us. And then 
then they don't want to see the no-go on all of the Emmy Awards that we won, you know, so it was, it was just great. So spending over 25 years in the nonprofit world and the last four years in DEI, can you give us a, a walkthrough of your career to date? Coming to this country, I had my MBA in marketing. So my intention really was to start working in the for-profit sector. But then I think for me, WYBE changed all of that. I started there and just looking at what was possible, real change that was possible for the community, real respect for diversity. That's what really got me going. And I did take a break because I thought I needed to explore my education. I needed to give that a you know, true benefit of having had that education. And I did go to the corporate sector for a little bit and work there and just wasn't happy because to me, that was not what gave me that sense of fulfillment, that sense of accomplishment. I really wanted to be able to make a change in a very different way. And the nonprofit sector, I felt, was my calling. And so since then, besides public broadcasting, I've had the good fortune of working with organizations that served youth, that served arts and culture, and most recently for the last 10 years, healthcare. But what was very much a theme through all of the work that I did was the ability to affect change for the positive with vulnerable populations. And so that's really been something that I felt was my heart's work to do. And I've been able to fundraise some significant dollars to help improve the quality of life, to remove access to care, to help enhance vulnerable populations in some significant ways. And so I feel very grateful for that. And to be in a place where I am now, where I can lead organizations through those changes and still make a difference in the communities. After working many, many years in nonprofit, you made a change to DEI. Can you tell us what DEI is and what prompted that change? Sure. So I can start with what it really means. It's uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And some versions of it now that you may see in media are D, E, I, and B, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So diversity really talks about representation, underrepresented aspects of our community, underrepresenting demographics. Equity is not to be confused with equality. So let's go into that a bit. Equality could mean, when you're talking about it through a workforce lens, it means everybody getting access to the same resources, right? That's equality. Equity, on the other hand, refers to people getting access to the resources that they need in order to make them successful. So it may not be the same for everyone. It's according to what they need to make them successful in the position that they're in, in the level that they're in, or where they're coming from. Inclusion takes a look at everybody feeling that they are a part of the mission, they feel valued, they feel connected to the mission, and belonging really is the outcome of all of that. When an employee feels like they belong at the organization, that's when productivity soars, morale soars, Retention is at an all-time high. And so for companies, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, the bottom line really sees some tremendous positive changes, whether it's, if it's a for-profit, whether it's you know profit to stakeholders, a lot of increased revenue, a lot of innovation with non-profits. It's being able to serve their mission or advance that mission in a more palpable, tangible way. And so that's what all of those definitions really mean. And when I started at your organization at the end of October of 2019, it was really to start a fundraising program for that organization. But, you know, March rolled around and then we had the murder of George Floyd and organizations everywhere were suddenly taking a look at what does it mean to be in a pandemic, to be dealing with all of these adversities and so much of them have to do with diversity. 
And so my company then asked me to take on the role of creating a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy. And so that's how I formally came into DEI. Although, you know, certainly had that first look into DEI at you know WYBE, and then through my work with the Association of Fundraising Professionals, I had already been surfing on the diversity and what was then known as outreach committee, both on the local, regional, and also at the international level, where we were putting together conferences that talked about what does it mean to be a fundraiser coming from a diverse background? What does it mean to be serving diverse communities? Because, you know, we need to take a look at donors coming from different communities, not just, you know, Caucasian donors, but how do we approach Latino donors? How do we approach Asian donors? And what does that mean for the organization who serves that particular community? So I'd already been doing work with that from a volunteer level. This was the first time I was being asked to take that on, and it became part of my title to create a strategy from the ground up. Can you talk a little bit about generally how you created and crafted the DEI program at your uh, last company? It was a lot of research. I don't believe in reinventing the wheel. So when I looked around me, I saw a lot of companies that had already done such a good job in starting to work in some very meaningful ways bring together a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy. So I took best practices from different organizations of varying sizes, various sectors, and tried to take the best to see what would be most relevant to the organization. And because this was a global organization, I reached out to my colleagues in different parts of the world. Because again, DNI strategy in the US and approach to DNI in the US is very different than DNI approaches in, say, the UK or the Middle East or Asia, Southeast Asia, all of those different places. So I took a look at what was happening on a global front and again, just called out what would be relevant for us to use. And what came out from it was the need to create a comprehensive diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy that was based on board engagement and workforce engagement, trying to look at culture or the internal aspects of how a good DNI strategy becomes not just something that's a policy, but something that's really infused into the culture. And then also externally, you have all of this going on within the organization. How are we working with our external stakeholders, whether it's vendors, whether it's suppliers, whether it's donors? What is that external facing value proposition that we have and how can we make that visible so everyone knows that we're really walking the talk? So doing that, approaching it from all of those three levels and, you know, using those three pillars was the most effective because we just then had an uptick in employee engagement. Retention rates were getting higher. And also the organization was just a happier place to be because we had some employee resource groups that were started around racial and ethnic diversity, around professional development. And for once, and working with colleagues across the country and across the world, I saw that slowly people were starting to understand that being respected, being authentic in who they were, and bringing that authentic self to the organization has only great benefits for the organization and for themselves. So it was working both ways. Employers were happy. Employees were suddenly feeling valued. And that showed up in work that they did. You're a woman. Yes. An Indian American woman. You must have experienced some discrimination in your career. Do you have any, any memories of moments that you might have thought of? in your personal experience that helped shape this DEI program? Oh gosh, that's that's such a great question because yeah, I certainly experienced, experienced a lot of discrimination. Well, not to the point where it's ever gotten me down, but in, in learning so much about the diversity, equity, inclusion space, I realized very quickly that what I had been experiencing were what we call microaggressions. And often it came from people that may not be ill-meaning. They had probably had no malice. It's just that they didn't know. 
And so that underscored the need for education to be a big part of any DNI strategy. For instance, I was always asked the question, where are you from? And I'd say Philadelphia. And they'd say, no, where are you really from? And I'd say, well, really, I'm from Philadelphia. And they're like, no, no, no. Where are you from? Where do you come from? And then I would realize that people very quickly mean that I need to go back to my roots saying, all right, I was born and raised in India. And then they would come back to me and say, oh, uh, but you speak such good English. Really? People? So it was just, it was just interesting to go down that path and to say, well, thank you. I appreciate that. But, you know, I did have the privilege of a good education. Um, I'm happy to be here. So it was those tiny things that gave me pause sometimes. But then you start to take it as a matter of fact, okay, when minute people say, where are you from? I would, you know, skip all of it and go, yeah, I was born and raised in India because that's where you want to get to. Let's get there and let's move on. You know, so going from there, I also knew because I was very much wanting to affect change within the community outside of places I worked in. So I did a lot of volunteer work and got asked to be, as I, you know, ascended up the career ladder, if you will, got asked to be on a couple of boards for nonprofits in the area. And for some of the boards, I knew even going in that I was the token person of color. I was the token woman. I would go in and pretty much everyone around the table were older white gentlemen. And so I had to be there, but I had to not just be there because I was a token or representing my gender, my community, racial community as well. But I, I knew I had to have a voice there. And there was a mentor in one of the places, one of my bosses came to me and said, hey, I put you on this task force with all of the, and I said, but what am I going to do there? There are all these older white men. And he said, no, that's exactly why you need to be there because you need to have a voice. You need to stand up. You need to make a meaningful contribution. And it took me a while to see what that meaningful contribution really was and to just kind of step into my power. I'm here for a reason. I'm here because A, I'm a subject matter expert. I'm here because they want a woman's perspective. I'm here because they want perspective from my age group. I'm here because they want the diversity that I bring and representing an ethnic community that had not otherwise been represented. So how do I really step into my power as all of these different hats that I'm wearing, different aspects of my personality, and yet bring to the table meaningful contribution that ultimately advances the mission of the organization. So I mean that being silent and being quiet wasn't really serving me or the reason that I was asked to be part of the group well at all. So I needed to step up, step into my power, and really speak to the voice that I had been given. Michelle, how do you measure the effectiveness of diversity and inclusion and in, in strategies in the workplace? Good question. And it's not a simple answer because it's something that takes time. As with all positive change, with any change really, it takes time to become a part of the habits of an organization. It takes time to become intrinsic to the culture of the organization. Any DNI strategy does not happen overnight. And just as its implementation doesn't happen overnight, its traction also does not happen overnight. So it's something where an organization needs to have the patience and more importantly, needs to have the persistence to continue on that DNI path in order for it to make some real differences within the organization. So how do you measure? You measure through employee engagement. If you're creating, say, an employee resource pool within the organization, is it something that's working? Is membership increasing? Is Are we getting some good conversations out of it? Are we getting some good recommendations for the improvement of the culture of the organization? How is that being taken on by leadership? How is change being brought back down to the whole organization? And I think it really starts at the top. I think leaders of an organization really need to embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion 
as a structure, as a means of operation, and they've got to be able to just take a stand where stands need to be taken. Because not all the conversations are going to be easy ones. Not all the changes are going to be easy ones. But as long as they're aligned with the mission of the organization and the values that the organization stands for, that's got to be persistent. And so it's that measurement. And also retention. Retention is one of those bottom line figures that just does not lie. If an employee is happy, they stay. If they're not, they leave. Michelle, right now in the U.S., there's a lot of politicking going on, if you will, around DEI. And the government is getting involved in eliminating, changing laws. What do you see as a potential impact on organizations or schools, for that matter, if they reduce these DEI programs? What effect is it going to have on companies, schools, employees, do you think, personally? I definitely think it's going to have a detrimental effect because you look at all of the good things that happen, right? When a DNI strategy works and works well, whether that's greater engagement, more innovation, employees feeling valued and respected. So the flip side, it is all of that. It's the disrespect. The employees, especially from what's known as the URTs, which is the underrepresented talent group, feeling invisible. And there's so much that can be said for giving people a voice. And when that voice is silenced, there's going to be a lot of frustration. There's going to be a lot of, I think, an exodus. We're seeing some of that now with the quiet quitting, where people are doing just enough so they don't get fired. I think we'll see a lot more of that. What strategies or alternatives could organizations implement if they decide to phase out specific DEI programs without compromising their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion? So I think the first step really needs to start with the leadership of the organization. They need to stand true to what they believe in. And whether there's a formal DEI program or not, I think it starts with some basic principles, which is respect for everybody. Respect for every human being, regardless of where they're coming from, racial or ethnic demographic they represent, what age group they represent, what different thinking styles they represent, sexual orientation. Respect for the individual, who they are, and what they bring, the talents, the innovation, the ideas that they bring to make the company as a whole a better place to be. So I think it really boils down to basic values like respect, like the opportunity to provide open channels for communication. So any concerns are heard, the opportunity to be able to create that equity where individuals, regardless of where they're coming from, get the support and the resources they need to excel at the workplace. So it all comes down to looking at each of our employees as human beings, as people who are valued, who are an integral part of the success of the organization. So whether there's a formal DNI program or not, I think it really boils down to respecting the employee and to be able to give them a voice and to make the safe space. We talk a lot about psychological safety, right? To empower an individual to be who they are in order to contribute to that collective success of the company. Should organizations decide or be forced to remove the programs that they've developed over these number of years? What do you think will happen? I think really it doesn't matter whether we have a formal DEI program or not. I think what matters is a commitment to supporting individual success and knowing too that an individual comes bearing very different ideas and comes from different places, right? Our recruitment strategies, our retention strategies, our upskilling of individuals, all of that needs to take place on a consistent basis. And yes, DNI has, without a doubt, shed the light on the disparities. And I think that awareness is important to take forward. Whether there's a formal program or not, it's important to take that forward and know that the individual as a whole needs to be respected. And understanding too, that not 
everyone comes to the table with the same strengths. So how do we speak to and develop an individual with strengths as opposed to, okay, this is what they lack. And so let's bolster them up that way. It's to be able to create a safe space where individuals are recognized and appreciated for who they are. So I really always think it comes down to the values, the core values of the organization and to be able to give people what they need to succeed. Now that you've created a DEI program, how would you look at your next role differently? I think it really influences everything I see. So it's it's added such a great filter to the lens with which I view the world because I look at donors very differently now. It's not a one-size-fits-all or not even a one-size-fits-most. It's if you know a single donor, you know a single donor. And you cannot really make generalizations that if this is good for this particular community, then it must be good for everyone in that community. That's not true. So I think what it's done for me is really raised an awareness of how different people are, but how much celebration we have in that difference, right? How much there is to celebrate in that difference. And just how much we need to lean in to the power of that diversity, because there really is power in bringing a diverse people together. We saw that at YBE, right? We all came from such different places, but yet when we came together, we made magic because we all were respected for our different perspectives. And I think ultimately that's how I'm viewing my leadership now. That's how I'm viewing coaching. That's how I'm viewing my mentoring relationships with other fundraisers. And so I think it's, it's really made me a more self-aware person because we all have biases. It's made me more aware of these biases, but it's also made me a better leader, I think, because now I look to see what's different in somebody else and how can I celebrate that diversity appropriately but also how do I create a space for that individual to bring that aspect of their diversity to the table in a meaningful way? Michelle, I honestly couldn't think of a, a better person to be in a room full of men and being that one person who's providing that perspective. So thank you for talking to us about diversity and equity and inclusion today. Thank you. We are gonna have some fun now. We're going to do some speed round questions. I thought we were already having fun, but all right. I'll start with the first one. What do you think people will be nostalgic for in 500 years? Good one, but it's an easy one. I think personal connection, because right now we, we live in such an, a, a screen world, right? How often have we not gone to a restaurant and we've seen even if it's just two people at the table, they're both in their screens. Why even bother coming together in person if you're both going to be on screens? So I think what we're missing is that personal connection. And I think years down the line, that's the one thing we'll look back and say, remember when we actually used to enjoy being in person with each other? Probably will be a different world. I'm hoping not. Because when we went through the pandemic, what's the one thing we missed? I know the one thing I missed is not being able to hug my loved ones and my friends. You know, that personal connection was what I truly miss. So hopefully that will outweigh other things that are heavy on our mind and will come back to personal connections. But if we ever are nostalgic, I think it was the strength of those personal connections. What is the weirdest fact that you know? <laughs> this is getting inside Michelle's brain here. So you know how there's always been that debate, right? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? So I recently read that it was the chicken that came first because eggs have a certain protein in their shell that only comes from chickens. Oh, interesting. You've solved the, the age-old question. <laughs> yes, we can all go home now. <laughs> Michelle, where do you go for fresh inspiration? Easy. I go to women that inspire me because I see myself as a is a strong woman and I look for inspiration with other women that have are doing things bigger and better brighter 
than I ever could. And it could come from anywhere, really. I have my manicurist, for instance, saves all her tips to send back to Cambodia so she can help her those who have food insecurities in her own community, in her village in Cambodia. And that inspires me. It's things like that. It could be what seems little, but has such a great impact. And people, ordinary people doing most extraordinary things, ordinary women doing the most extraordinary things. Both of you inspire me. I see podcasts all the time. And then when I saw that the two of you were coming together to do Pod Setter, first of all, great name, but to see that the two of you were back together again and you know putting your talents together so yeah both of you inspire me you inspire me michelle in lots of ways thanks Joe. but we will i will it's a very long list oh wow but this is a speed round so here we go with the next question which unconventional animal do you wish you could have as a pet um i think i go with the llama they are you know they're really very grounded and chill and they don't get they're not easily excitable and i think as a person with high energy myself sometimes i need that grounding and so it would be alhama name three things that you would take with you on a deserted island things items okay because the first of my list would have been jason momoa but <laughs> well i think we all well i i don't know about joelle but i sure would I'd take him. Yeah, see? Stand don't tell my husband. Don't tell my husband. No, stand alone, sister. No, it's not going to be that easy to take him there. Okay. What are those three items that you might take with you to the deserted island? I guess I would take some seeds so I could plant something that was meaningful and would, you know, help sustain me during my time there. And then I would take writing instruments and blank book because I would want to enjoy all my time there and come back whenever I was found or whatever, come back and publish about my experience there. Michelle, we have a uh, segment that's called Question Down the Lane. We have a question from our last guest for you, and then you'll be able to ask a question to our next guest. So the question is, what are you going to do to contribute to society? Well, um, I am going to become a better fundraiser because I believe that real change can happen through greater philanthropic investment. And certainly this country has shown how very generous they are. And so many of the wonderful things that we experience today have been made possible. And so many of the supports that we rely on, right, during a crisis are because of not the nonprofit sector. So I think I would just want to become a much better fundraiser in order to really inspire donors to give at a transformational gift level and affect change on the possibly global level. You know what would be great is if all the billionaires would just take a portion of their right money and yeah. that yeah. probably would eliminate your job, Michelle. Yeah, well, that's what the Giving Pledge is all about. Um, so I have hope that things like that will become more of a norm than an exception. And that's what will make a difference. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, but with every a change like that, with every gift like that or philanthropic investment, there's got to be accountability too, right? So there's got to be an accountability to make sure that money reaches where it's supposed to go and make the difference that it's intended to do. So I think that's the other part of it. And I think that's where a lot of my colleagues in fundraising really can shine. Michelle, it pains me to say we're at the bottom of the episode, but it's been wonderful to reconnect. We're so happy that you could join us on Podcetera. Likewise, Renee, I'm, you and Joelle have been such a great part of my friend group to have, but you both are individuals with some incredible talent and it is just so, so fulfilling for me to see you come together again and to be working on something like Podsepra. And I wish you both the very, very best because the way you draw your guests out and the way you um, treat them with so much respect, I, I've always admired that about you. Back from Philly Live, and I see that's one thing that hasn't changed. So thank you for giving me the honor of being here on Podsepra. It's, it's my privilege, and I wish you both 
very, very best for the future. Thanks, Michelle. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share Podcetera. And be sure to follow and like the series wherever you enjoy podcasts. For Podcetera, I'm Renee Lego. And I'm Joelle Lodovich. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank <laughs> you.